In our last episode, on the night of January 8th, 1927, Shady Rest was destroyed in an explosion, and four bodies were found at the scene. Beloved State Highway Patrolman Lori Price, who remarked that he had seen Charlie Berger, Art Newman, and Connie Ritter driving toward the scene that night, soon went missing along with his pregnant wife Ethel. Charlie Berger later testified against the Sheltons in the trial for the Collinsville mail robbery. A Night of Another Sort, Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger, by Gary Deneal. Chapter 21, Part 2 In sharp contrast to the arrogant behavior of his two former friends and associates, Carl Shelton seemed more a banker or successful businessman than a former gangster as he took the stand. Following questions by his own defense counsel, in answer to which he denied all allegations made by the other side, Carl Shelton was cross-examined by United States District Attorney Walter M. Provine. He asked him to state his occupation at the present time. Studying his shoes for a moment, Carl answered quietly, Collection agency. The ensuing laughter prompted Judge Fitzhenry to pound his gavel for order. In their closing arguments on February 3rd, the defense attorneys referred to Berger as the Emperor of Harrisburg, and to the eager Newman as the new light in American literature. They stressed the bias of each man in their character, or lack of it. For his part, in referring to two of the Shelton brothers' alibi witnesses, Joe McGlynn and Delo Studi, the district attorney said, After hearing some of the lawyers testify in this case, I think their licenses to practice in Illinois should be revoked. During a break in the trial, Carl Shelton happened to see Art Newman near the elevator. For a moment, their eyes met. Then Shelton stepped over to the cigar counter, leaving Newman and his guards waiting for the elevator to arrive. Did you see the eyes of his? Newman asked his stoic guardians. That's the way he looks before he shoots and kills people. Learning of these remarks after Newman and the others had stepped onto the elevator, Shelton swore a little before breaking into a smile. You know, that little devil's clever. He can almost read your mind. On the morning of February 5th, Judge Fitzhenry sentenced Carl, Earl, and Bernie Shelton to 25 years in Leavenworth Penitentiary. In the custody of six deputy U.S. Marshals, the brothers arrived at the prison at 10 a.m. the next morning, which happened to be a Sunday. After their street clothes were exchanged for prison garb, they were escorted to their cells. The next day, Deputy Warden Fred Zorpst assigned the inmates to their new jobs in the stone-cutting department. Without problems of his own, Berger might have celebrated the trial's outcome. However, the presence of Jim Pritchard in the courtroom clouded his enjoyment of the proceedings. The Franklin County Sheriff had been prevented from serving his warrant only because the federal men, in whose custody Berger remained throughout the trial, held the gangster on a $1,000 bond in a conspiracy case then being pressed against the Sheltons. None too pleased with the cold reception given him by Berger's custodians, 
Pritchard was, nevertheless, informed that upon Berger's release after the trial, he would be notified. When that time came, he was not notified. By the time the verdict was announced, Newman was on a train heading for Long Beach, California. In the train station prior to Newman's departure, a reporter had seen him pretending to read a newspaper, but he was actually holding up a mirror to see who might be lurking in the shadows. At the close of the trial, Berger was taken to Springfield and there released on the $1,000 bond. When he returned to Harrisburg, it seemed everyone was discussing the recent death of Helen Holbrook in St. Petersburg, Florida. The coroner's jury there had called it suicide, but the rumor was that she had been silenced to prevent her testifying at the Shelton brothers' trial. Harrisburg remembered Helen as a buxom beauty who had enjoyed the company of gangsters, as had Lori Price. Chapter 22 A Man Who Knew Too Much At about 11 a.m. on February 5th, the same day Judge Fitzhenry sentenced the three Shelton brothers to the Rocks of Leavenworth, Joe Waldman, a farmer and stock buyer living near Du Bois in Washington County, was checking his wheat field after a recent sleet storm. In some weeds near the highway, he saw a man's body. Turning the corpse over, he noticed a badge with the number 78. From newspaper accounts that had mentioned the badge number, Waldman knew he had found Lori Price. Harold E. Wolfe, a Belleville stockbroker, recalled in a letter to the Illinois Magazine, I can see it yet, the partly exposed body of a man wearing the uniform of an Illinois highway patrolman, lying there in the snow. His star was still on his uniform. New evidence of the authority that had been his until that fateful night, weeks before when he had been invited to go for what proved to be his last ride. A heavy snow had fallen the night he disappeared, and it had been followed by others and by a spell of real cold weather. The snow had formed a pronounced drift or heap over the body, and the low temperature had kept it from melting until now, when a few warm days melted enough to disclose the tragedy the drift had concealed. It was not a pleasant sight, made more gruesome by the fact that some animals had gnawed part of the flesh from the exposed hand and arm the hand and arm of Lloyd Price. At about 11 o'clock one night in early February, Rudy Walker of El Dorado heard a knock on his door. As he flicked the light switch, Walker heard a man say, Don't turn that light on. Cradled in the man's arm was a machine gun, and by his side stood a young woman, formerly of El Dorado. Charlie Berger said he needed a place to hide for the night, now that Sheriff Turner was finally looking for him. Ah. I'll put you up here, Charlie, but how long are you going to stay? His friend asked. I'll leave sometime tomorrow night, but I don't know where I'll go from here. In the morning when you get up, knock at our door and I'll get up, but we won't raise the blinds nowhere in the house. We'll have to stay here all day. I got up the next morning and knocked at his door. Are you ready for breakfast? It was about 9 o'clock. I done got the kids off to school. He told me to go to Turner and tell him that he would be willing to give himself up if he could take his machine gun to jail with him because he didn't want the Shelton gang to take a pot shot at him. When Walker delivered the message as he promised, Turner asked where Charlie could be found. I said, I don't know. He was at my house last night. He left sometime during the night. If you find out where he is, you let me know, Turner said. On the afternoon of February 8th, 
Lori Price was eulogized by Reverend A.E. Prince at the First Baptist Church in Marion, and later buried with full military honors in Maplewood Cemetery north of town. That same afternoon, Charlie Berger was arrested at his home by Sheriffs Turner and Pritchard, and placed in the Saline County Jail. There was an understanding between the two officers at that time that the prisoner would remain in his cell that night and be released the next morning into the custody of Sheriff Pritchard, who would then deliver him to the jail at Benton. Taking no chances, Jim Pritchard drove into Marion Wednesday morning, February 10th, in one of three automobiles, each of which was crowded with armed deputies. Coleman, his deputies, and the Marion Chief of Police, and even Coroner George Bell joined the caravan at Marion. In short order, it was rattling toward Harrisburg. That this expedition was merely Act Two in a comedy of errors became evident at the Saline County line, where Pritchard was informed that Lige Turner had gone to Springfield to attend a hard roads meeting. Before leaving, though, the Saline County Sheriff had instructed his deputies that none of the prisoners were to be released during his absence. Fearful that the cold excursion of December 27th was about to be repeated, the two sheriffs and their men nevertheless went to the Saline County Jail. Only Pritchard himself, however, stepped in to see the much-publicized prisoner. He returned with both good and bad news. That Berger remained in his cell where he belonged was encouraging. That his machine gun remained with him was not. The Saline County deputies, Pritchard said, freely admitted giving Berger the weapon, citing their fear of the man in their custody and the possible wrath of his enemies on the outside. It seemed Pritchard and Coleman had given up, at least for the day, when they returned to their respective counties. Just before noon, however, Pritchard was back in Harrisburg awaiting developments. That afternoon, through his secretary George Sutton, Governor Len Small announced that unless riotous conditions warranted the presence of the state militia, he would not act in the Saline County matter, and added that it was the responsibility of the local authorities to separate their prisoner from his machine gun. Back at the jail in Harrisburg, the fellow causing all the fuss realized by now that his freewheeling existence was about over. That day, he sold two tracts of his Saline County farmland to his sister Rachel. For one dollar and other considerations. Accompanied by three Saline County deputies and his attorney Scariel Thompson, Charlie Berger appeared before Circuit Judge Julius C. Kern at Mount Vernon late the following day. Thompson had thought it possible that in the habeas corpus proceeding, his client might be released under bond, thus foregoing a stint in the Franklin County Jail. Instead, after a session lasting approximately ten minutes, Judge Kern ordered that the prisoner now be placed in the custody of Sheriff Pritchard. Berger was driven to the Benton Jail, where he showered and received a change of clothes. While he was becoming adjusted to his new surroundings, up the street Judge Charles Miller set his bond at $42,500, $40,000 for Adams' murder, and $2,500 for assault to commit the murder of Pat Pulliam. Jim Pritchard's long day had ended well. With the Sheltons in prison, and with Berger in jail and his gang scattered, the authorities were busy trying to solve the crimes committed during the recent gang war. In the Adams affair, Roy Martin had the killer's note, and two names. The latter were supplied by a fellow who had recognized the two youths, and divulged their identity to a trusted friend. 
The information was passed along to another person who got the word to Martin. Talking with the eyewitness, Martin had his hearsay information confirmed. Harry and Elmo Thomason were the killers. Roy Martin had read, of course, that Elmo Thomason had been identified as one of the victims of the Shady Rest shootings and fire. But where was Harry? For all Martin knew, he was dead also, or perhaps hiding out in another state. He may have read, with passing interest, the accounts of the attempted jailbreak of four prisoners at the Marion Jail the night of January 29th. Common sense and uncommon courage did not enable the middle-aged lawyer to see that Harry was almost literally at his fingertips. Equally slow, and apparently as non-productive, was the search for the murderer of Lori Price. On February 7th, the day the Sheltons began serving their terms at Leavenworth, the Price inquest was held in the Washington County Courthouse at Nashville. From 9.30 a.m. until noon, at which time the inquest was continued until the following Saturday, the six-man jury heard the testimony of Joe Waldman, Sergeant John O'Keefe of DeCoin, who had positively identified the body, and others. As had been the case for the last hour of the previous setting, the inquest of February 12th was closed to the public. These special precautions, it was felt, would encourage the testimony of those who might fear reprisals, since Price himself was a classic example of a man who knew too much. While the patrolman's killing was discussed behind closed doors, the search for his wife continued. After Price's body had been discovered in Washington County, that area became the focal point of the search, as Williamson County had been previously. In time, the search would be broadened to include Pope and Hardin counties, with their abandoned mines and extensive forests. A joyless endeavor it was, this wading through the underbrush, poking through ruins for the body of a lady schoolteacher, and a very young one at that. Meanwhile, Roy Martin had another break. At some point, possibly as early as mid-February, he learned that the Jimmy Madison in the Marion Jail was actually Harry Thomason. Without letting the prisoner know he was being observed, Martin and Beulah Adams visited the jail. There, Joe Adams's widow identified the prisoner as one of her husband's killers. Chapter 23 Black Hand Letter During the first week of March, Thomason was one of several defendants in two trials. In the first, Thomason, Danny Brown, Ray Roan, and Ray Highland were tried for the robbery of Marshall Stewart at a roadhouse near Culp the night of December 27th. The result was a hung jury. Of the four, only Highland was excluded as a defendant in the second trial. In this trial, his friends were charged with robbing an old man, Joe Murray of Weaver, the night of December 20th. This time, the jury voted to convict. In sentencing them on March 4th, Judge D.T. Hartwell delivered a scathing denunciation of the defendant's activities. In addition to sentencing the men to from 10 years to life imprisonment, Hartwell ordered that each defendant be locked in solitary confinement for his first 72 hours in prison, and upon each anniversary of the crime to be again locked in solitary for 24 hours. Because he claimed to be only 19, Judge Hartwell thought him older and said so, Harry Thomason was sent to the Pontiac Reformatory until he turned 21, at which time he would join his companions at Menard. 
The other two were to begin serving their sentences there immediately. When news of the verdict reached Berger, he surely winced. Above all, he wanted Harry Thomason out of jail and free, so that if need be, the lad could be silenced. Bernice Berger had served as one of Thomason's alibi witnesses at the trial, testifying that on the night of the robbery, Harry had been at their home in Harrisburg. She remembered the date, said Pretty Bernice, because Harry had brought a box of candy for Minnie and Charlene. One month after entering the jail, Berger was released on bonds totaling $42,500. Those who signed his bonds were Bernice Berger, Andrew Salas, Berger's next-door neighbor, and Steve Stefancy of Harrisburg, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Bell of Johnston City, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Kuka of West Frankfurt, Horace Neely and H.L. Summers of Marion, Thomas Parton of East St. Louis, and Mrs. Jacob Rachel Shomsky of St. Louis. The first signer, for $35,000, was Berger himself. Free though he was of the bars and of the galling presence of Jim Pritchard, the graying gang leader was nonetheless far from carefree. As if Harry Thomason's incarceration were not cause enough for grief, Berger read that Jack Dopehead Cruz had been arrested in Akron, Ohio, by Chief John L. Stack of the Illinois State Highway Patrol. One of the many hangers-on at Shady Rest, Cruz was thought to have been the stranger whose presence so disturbed Steve George on the night of January 8th. The one George had incautiously threatened to kill if he did not quickly leave the place, according to Lori Price. Thanks to information supplied by Connie Ritter, first reports had listed Cruz as one of the victims of the Shady Rest tragedy. Clearly, the man was in a position to know too much, and apparently he was talking. With Washington County temporarily center stage, Williamson County was not exactly fading into the background. On the night of March 16th, Arlie O. Boswell returned home after buying ice cream downtown in Marion, and was closing his garage door when a shot from the shadows tore through his right side just above the hip. Stunned though he was, Boswell managed to get off three shots at a fleeing figure. More painful than serious, the wound put him in the hospital at West Frankfurt for a few days. Later, when he was back at his home but still in bed, he, as usual, was mystified as to who was trying to kill him. The closest thing to a clue was a black hand letter received the day of the shooting. It read, You know Price knew too much. He didn't know half as much as you do. Ten years to life don't mean much to you. As stated in the Marion Daily Republican, the 10 years to life could have referred to the sentences handed down to Brown, Roan, and Thomason, but the connection was never proven and the shooting, like so many others, was never solved. Next time. After the door was closed behind them, Harry and Elma were seated and Berger informed them that he had a job he wanted them to do the following day. Some indication of the nature of that job came when Newman asked Harry if he had ever killed anyone. 